Well, that video portrays how the resurrection story may have been told at first Easter if social media had existed back in that day. But if you this morning were to try to describe the Easter story for yourselves using only quotation marks, uh, what would, not quotation marks, punctuation marks, what would you use? What would this morning be if you had to pick a punctuation mark to describe what Easter was like? Would it be a comma? Something that has made you just pause and think this morning? Maybe you stepped outside of your normal Sunday morning routine to be here? Would it be a period? You know it's Easter Sunday, you've heard the tomb was empty. You should be excited, but if you were honest, there are probably some people here this morning uh, feeling like a period, saying, I know how the story ends, Uh, let's get to the end of the message so I can go on and uh, do the rest of my day. For others of you, a period would also be what you would use, but yours is more like a big, black, angry, desperate period. You're, you're here on Easter, and yet you really feel like it's still Good Friday because you're back living in a time where uh, you're desperate, you're hurting. Things have not turned out the way you wanted. Maybe you're struggling with a financial issue. Maybe you've found out recently you have a, an illness, maybe even a terminal illness. could be that you've lost a loved one. And so you feel a little bit like a big, black, dark, desperate period. You know, that's how they felt the first century. When the women went to the tomb that first morning, it wasn't for the first Easter sunrise service. Remember, they went there with spices to finish embalming and preparing the body that they thought they would find in the tomb. The the disciples and other followers of the day, the apostles, had hopes and dreams that had died on Good Friday as Jesus was crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. And as the women came to the tomb that that first Sunday morning, the mark changed to a question mark. Who moved the stone? Where was the body of Jesus? What has happened? As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 9, uh, we're going to pick up the story that we left off last week. We've been walking our way through the passage, uh, this series in the, the Gospel of Luke, and you know we've seen Jesus teaching amazing things and with authority. We've seen him doing miracles. We've seen all kinds of things that have been happening. The last thing we looked at last week was the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus had taken a single sack lunch and, and fed huge crowds, and, and people were speculating as to who Jesus was. The question mark is not something new in our day. It's something people had in the first century. So Jesus turns to his closest group of followers called the disciples, and he asks them a question, which you see there in Luke nine eighteen through 20. It says, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. But others, one of the prophets of old that is risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, if you were to walk out of the doors of Wayside and you were to go and talk to people on the street and ask that very question this morning, who do you think Jesus is? You'd get a variety of answers. Some people would tell you, well, he was a a good moral man. Uh, Others would tell you, well, he was a great teacher. Maybe I don't agree with who he is or all that he said, but there's a lot of things that he said that were revolutionary and changed society, and so I think he's a great teacher. Still others would tell you he's a great prophet. 
If you're not aware of it, the Quran even says Jesus was a great prophet. The Muslims say he was a great prophet. But was he the Christ? Was he the Son of God? Was he the promised Messiah? As you look at the the various options that we have and the claims that were made by Jesus himself, you find that you can't come up with those options, that he was a good moral man, a great teacher, or even a great prophet. Maybe you've heard of a person by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis concluded there are one of three options we have when it comes to Jesus. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. C.S. Lewis is a famous Christian apologist, but what you may not know is Lewis at one point declared himself an atheist in his life. At the age of 15, he said, I don't believe Jesus is who he said he was. I don't believe he's the son of God. And Lewis, uh, who later became a professor at Oxford and Cambridge in England, if you rewind the tape back to when he was a student at Oxford, He was challenged by several of his classmates, among whom uh, was J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. And, And they said to Lewis, why don't you really study the claims of Christ? Why don't you dig in and see if he's who he said he was? And Lewis came up with this liar, lunatic, or the Lord response. When he was done with his study, he said a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either he was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You, you can shut him up for a fool. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not, let that, he's not left that open to us. Now, the reason that Lewis says you can't consider him one of those other things, but he either is a liar, lunatic, or the Lord is because when you think about what Jesus said, at a minimum, he would be a liar. Because uh, as a liar, he was telling people something he knew wasn't true. If he was not the Messiah, the promised one, and yet he claimed to be, Lewis was right, he would be on the level of the devil of hell himself. Because what Lewis is saying is that Jesus has has fooled a lot of people who are now lost for all eternity because they believe that Jesus was the promised one of God. They believe their sins were taken care of at the cross, and they believed and put their faith in him. And if Jesus was not who he said he was, then these people are lost for all eternity. The Bible tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, when it comes to considering if Jesus was a liar, I want you to think about people you know who are liars. They typically lie for one of two main reasons. It's either to get something or to hide something, where they're afraid of the consequences if the truth is known. So I want you to think about the first one. What did Christ gain by claiming to be the Messiah if he wasn't? It didn't get him fame, fortune. 
It ended up getting him nailed to a cross where he died. Now, if you're thinking, well, he wanted fame and followers, but things just kind of got out of hand. The, the lie took off and he couldn't, he couldn't stop it. That's not true. If Jesus really was not who he said he was, he had many opportunities to say, hey, I'm just kidding, and walk away from it. We find this during his trials. One example is in Matthew 26, 62 through 67. There it says the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is this that, that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether or not you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right there, Jesus could have said, uh, yeah, I'm not him. And he would have walked out. But Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and he said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you yourselves have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face. And they beat him with their fist and others slapped him. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Jesus was afraid of the consequences. He had taken things so far that to turn back now and live the rest of his life in shame, he wasn't willing to do that. But even if you uh, have that argument, and I give that to you, what about the disciples? What, what about the disciples? Do you remember those guys in the Garden of Gethsemane when the mob came to arrest them? What did they do? It said they fled. They fled for their lives. Now, one guy, Peter pulled out his sword. He said, I'm going to fight. He whacked off the, the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus stopped that, healed the servant, told Peter, put away the sword. And, and, and Peter himself escaped. Now, you remember when Jesus was taken to his trials, he's in the courtyard. Peter comes into this outer area. And what did Peter do? Did he say, I'm here to fight for Jesus again? He lied. Peter lied not once, not twice, but three times. He denied even knowing Jesus. To save his own life, Peter started cursing and swearing, I don't know this man. He lied. And after Jesus was crucified, the Bible tells us that the disciples locked themselves away in an upper room, hidden behind locked doors, trembling in fear for their lives. But then... Not only the scriptures, but books that were written during that day, historical documents outside of the written scriptures tell us the disciples were out in the streets. They were, they were saying this man was the Messiah. This man rose from the dead. We ourselves have seen Jesus resurrected from the Lord. Now, wait a minute. These are guys who have run away to save their lives. These are guys who have lied to save their lives. They're, they were hiding in fear, but now they're willing to die? To die for a lie, would they really do that? Maybe you've heard of a man by the name of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a key figure in the Watergate scandal. This was uh, the break-in that happened back when uh, Nixon was president. And if you've studied in history or lived it, for some of us, you remember that during that time, this is what took down the Nixon administration. This is what caused the president to resign. And many people went to jail, including Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson was not a Christian. He was, in fact, called a, this evil man. And while he was in prison, Colson uh, ended up coming to faith. 
And Colson, one of the main reasons he gives for coming to faith and believing in Jesus Christ is the resurrection. And this is what he said about it. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Now, how? How would Watergate prove that the resurrection was a fact? Well, Colson tells us. Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured it if it wasn't true. Colson says Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, these guys wanted to believe it so badly. They convinced themselves that it was true. Do you remember when Mary and the other women went to the tomb that morning? It wasn't for the first Easter sunrise service. The scriptures tell us they were carrying spices. They were going to finish embalming the body, the body of Jesus that they said was in the tomb. And when they found the tomb empty, and when they came back and they told the disciples, Jesus' body isn't there. The disciples didn't declare, he is risen indeed. It says that Peter and John ran to the tomb. They're thinking these women went to the wrong tomb. He's still there. He's still in the grave. And it says they looked in the tomb, and John, as he sees the grave clothes there, it's not like you see pictures today where there's a few nice sheets kind of laying there. They would have cocooned the body, and the way they wrapped it with sheets and spices, it made a hard shell. The shell was there, but the body was gone. The face wrapping was folded up separate from that. And John looks in. If you're stealing the body, you don't take it out of the shell. There was no cut marks. They're saying the body is gone. It came through the wrappings. Now, Peter, Peter didn't yet believe. What was it that led Peter to believe? It was later when the resurrected Lord appeared to Peter. You know, we all know a guy by the name of Thomas. How would you like to be remembered for eternity as doubting Thomas? I mean, everybody else doubted in that day, but, but he got the label. John 20, 24 through 29 tells us this. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, that's what he used to be. Now he's doubting Thomas, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Again, he passes through solid things. And, and he stood in their midst, and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus appeared to the disciples. Not once, not twice, several times. Sometimes in one-on-one -on -one interactions like with Peter. 
Sometimes in, in small groups like the, the other disciples on the road to Emmaus. Sometimes it was in larger gatherings like the 12 that were here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says, At one point Jesus appeared to a crowd of more than 500 people at once. Was this a mass hallucination that everybody saw Jesus? You know, even if you're thinking, again, well, people can convince themselves of anything. Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of James? 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, who is James? James was one of the half-siblings of Jesus. The scriptures tell us when Jesus Christ was conceived, it was through a miraculous conception where the Holy Spirit uh, conceived through the Virgin Mary. Scriptures tell us that Jesus re, uh, Mary remained a virgin until the birth of Jesus. Well, then her husband Joseph had regular relations with her as a husband and wife, and other children were born. The Bible tells us Jesus had brothers and sisters. These were called half-siblings. They shared Mary, the biological mother, and they had Joseph as their physical father while Christ had this miraculous conception. And James and these other brothers and sisters were not those who said, well, Jesus is the Messiah. Mom and dad told us. We've seen things. Like typical siblings, they kind of had squabbles in the home. In fact, they were always mocking Jesus. Oh, you say you're the son of God. Yeah, right. At one point, they're mocking him and saying, why don't you go to Jerusalem, Jesus? The crowds are there. Do your God thing. You know, kind of show everybody you're who you are. John 7, 5 says of his half-siblings, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And yet here we see James has become a believer. Not just a believer. The book of James in the New Testament was written by him. He becomes a leader in the church. And James himself actually is later killed rather than deny that Jesus is the Lord. A guy who grew up with Jesus making fun of him, saying, you're not the son of God, suddenly is willing to die for a lie? The only thing that explains that and all the others who were willing to go through this is they saw the resurrected Lord. If you were to take the recorded eyewitnesses of those who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, as he walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to people. The, the Jewish leaders in that day were saying, well, somebody stole his body. And the problem was, he kept showing up alive. Well, he was over here. He appeared to these people. He appeared to that group. If you were to take all of the eyewitnesses and put them up here on the platform, and we gave them just five minutes each to share what they saw, we would be here for two full days hearing the testimonies of those who saw the physical resurrected Lord. Would we say they're all lying? Would you say, well, they're all lunatics too, that they had lost their mind? Was Jesus a lunatic? You know, as you read the Bible, John 10, 20 tells us, many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Why would you listen to him indeed? Have you ever come across a person you thought was delusional. Now, don't point at somebody sitting around you, but have you ever met somebody that you thought maybe was a lunatic? You know, I've met several people that uh, are certifiable, and that's not my days as a pastor. That was back when I was a policeman in Dallas, okay? <laughs> so I got called out to places where I would come across people that you're kind of going, they're not playing with a full deck. And uh, one man was, uh, we knock on his door, and he opens the door, and he's wearing aluminum foil on his head. And we're kind of looking, you know, what's going on? And he's got a roll in his hand, and he hands it to us, and he says, put this on your head. 
And my partner and I are kind of looking around, waiting to see where Candid Camera is, right? Like, what, what's going on here? And we said, we're not putting foil on our head. And he said, well, I can't tell you about the coming alien invasion unless you have this on their head. It'll keep them from reading our minds, so you have to do this. I didn't put foil on my head, but I did take him to a place where he could get some help, right? He was a person that was not in his right mind. Now, I met other people who were delusional. I met several Elvises, not just the impersonators, but those who really thought they were the king. Uh, I met several people who thought they were the president. And um, I actually did meet two sitting U.S. presidents, uh, George H. Bush and Bill Clinton. And that was because there were times that when the president would come to town, they would have these presidential protection details, and I would be part of that as a Dallas police officer. Now, when I met these men who were the president, I didn't think they were crazy. Maybe you think they're crazy for wanting to be the president, but I didn't say you're crazy because you claim to be the president. If you are the president, there's nothing wrong with claiming to be the president, right? Dr. Gary Collins, who is a clinical psychologist, tells us that. He was asked to do a forensic analysis of the, the uh, historical record, not just the Bible, but other records of the day, and to give a professional opinion on whether Jesus exhibited signs of being a lunatic. And Dr. Collins wrote, Jesus wasn't just making outrageous claims. He was backing them up with miraculous acts of compassion, like healing the blind. Dr. Collins went on to say, you see, if I claim to be president of the United States, that would be crazy. You would look at me and, and see none of the trappings of the office of president. I wouldn't look like the president. People wouldn't accept my authority as president. No secret service agents would be guarding me. But if the real president claimed to be president, that would not be crazy because he is the president. And there would be plenty of confirming evidence of that. And as we look at the scriptures, we see plenty of confirming evidence of who Jesus was. And as I said, you can look even outside of the scriptures. If you're here today, if you're listening to this message, and you've never come to a point where you've truly done a personal, in-depth study of who Jesus is and what he claimed to be and whether it was true, I would encourage you to do that. And as I said, you don't have to just stick to the scriptures where you would say, well, those things are kind of slanted in one direction. There are plenty of non-biblical writings of the day that point to who Jesus was. And there are plenty of people throughout history who have tried to disprove that Jesus was who he said he was. One man from the past was named Josh McDowell. When I was going through college, he was, he was a, a, an avowed atheist who was trying to disprove Christianity. And he did this in-depth research to show that Jesus was not who he said he was. And Josh McDowell ended up becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And he wrote a book, it's, it's like a thesis, it's a thick tome that is titled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then he wrote a second book called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He set out to disprove Jesus was who he said he was, and he came to the conclusion Jesus is the Christ, the promised one. A more modern day example of this is a guy named by, by the name of Lee Strobel. Maybe you've heard of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a lawyer. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And he too set out to prove Jesus was not who he said he was. And Strobel as well came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he wrote not one or two, but 20 books with all the evidence. The New York Times bestseller, The Case for Christ, is one of the more popular ones that show the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. 
When the people in John 10, 20 said Jesus is insane, verse 21 tells us others were saying these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And when the religious leaders uh, talked with Jesus, they didn't say these are the ramblings of a madman. It says they were amazed that he taught with such authority. As Jesus went through trials before the government officials, as he stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate didn't say, this guy is a lunatic. What he said is, I find no fault with him. As the religious leaders watched what Jesus did, they didn't deny the miracles were real. What they did was deny where the power came from. Jesus responded to them in Luke 11, uh, 18 through 20, If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, a name for Satan, but I cast the demons out by the finger of God. And if so, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus concludes the kingdom has come. The evidence of it is indeed that I'm the Lord. People wonder, was he the Lord? And Jesus says, look at the evidence. Look at what's happening. And the only conclusion you can come to is that Jesus is the Lord. When we hear the name Christ, uh, I, I told you, as we looked at Luke 9, I want you to look back at Luke 9.20, because I stopped short of the last part of verse 20. In Luke 9.20, it says, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. When you hear that name, Christ, some people think it's his last name, Jesus Christ, like Roger Poupart. It's not his last name. It's a title. It was a messianic title that meant the promised Messiah. Matthew 16, 16 through 17 tells us, And Simon Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, God the Father in heaven has told you, I am the Christ. I am the Lord. I am the promised one. And when it comes to, to God revealing who Jesus is, it, it, he revealed him as well when he took on flesh and blood. Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus came to the earth. He took on flesh and blood. Why, why did Jesus come to the earth? Could God not have just been up there in heaven and rolled back the, the heavens like a scroll and said, Here I am? He came to earth. Like, one way to understand this is to think about an anthill. I wonder how many people here have ever uh, walked past an anthill, and your first reaction is to look for a stick to poke it. Has that ever happened to anybody? Anybody else poke anthills? Yeah. It's confession time, right? We do it. Sometimes we can't find a stick, so what we do is we use our foot, right? And we kind of now, living in Texas with fire ants, you know, don't leave your foot there, right? Stomp, shake it off, make sure those, those ants aren't on you. But if, if you've ever stomped on an anthill and you look down at it, maybe you felt a moment of remorse. Now, if they're fire ants, we don't, but maybe, you know, some other anthill. And if you're staring down at this anthill and you're, you're, you're seeing your footprint there, you know, you've crushed the mound, the, the ants are scurrying around, they're carrying away the, the, the ants that have been injured. And if you've ever thought... I wish I could do something about what the mess I just made. And you wanted to reach down with your hands in there. Would you be helping or making things worse? Worse. Because you're too big. 
The only way to help would be if you could shrink down to the size of one of the ants, become an ant yourself, and get in there and, and help them to repair the destruction. And as God was on his throne in heaven and he looked down at the world called earth, he sees this big footprint of Satan. Satan stomped on the world with sin. And he sees the destruction. And, and, and what God did was he shrunk down and he became one of us. The creator became a part of the creation. And as he came down here among us, it wasn't um, to deal with the surface problems of world hunger and disease. Certainly Jesus, as he encountered those things, fed people. He healed others. He brought some back from the dead. But what Jesus said is there is a root problem here that has to be dealt with. And that problem was the penalty of death Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. That's the problem. That's the footprint on our world. That's the root problem he came to deal with, sin and the penalty of death. That's why Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. As Jesus came to the earth, he knew as he reached his hands into the mess that we as wounded ants would sting him, that we would drive nails into his hands, that we would kill him. That's why he came. And it's not that this was a lie that got out of control and he, he, he just said, what's happening? It's something that he knew would happen. Go all the way back and read the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. It tells us that God knew what was coming and the solution would be the sending of his son who would crush the head of the serpent and would have his heel wounded. The picture of the coming crucifixion. He described in, in intricate detail the crucifixion of Jesus through the prophet Isaiah. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament, you find that over 700 years before Jesus was physically born as the baby in Bethlehem, that God had revealed the plan of what Jesus would do. Isaiah 53, 5 through 10 tells us, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. This describes the nails that were driven into his hands and his feet and the sword that was thrust into his side. And this was before Rome existed, before crucifixion had ever been invented by man. God said, this is how the Messiah will die. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We are sinners. We owe that penalty of death. And God said he took our sin and he heaped it on his son on the cross as he was hanging there. It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like, and, and a she, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Do you remember what we just read earlier in Matthew twenty six sixty two, Whereas the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Isaiah says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. As Jesus hung on that cross on Calvary, there were wicked men a criminal on either side dying with him. 
And after Jesus was crucified and his body was taken down off the cross, it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two wealthy aristocrats, who received and took the body of Jesus. And they laid his body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. He died with wicked men. He was with rich men in his death. Friends, this was over 700 years before it happened. And God gave intricate details of the prophecy that Jesus would fulfill. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. A guilt offering was the sacrifice given in the temple to atone or cover for a transgression. And Jesus died as the payment for our sins. John one twenty nine is Christ came, John the Baptist looked at him and pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Michael walked us through on Good Friday, the sacrifice and and what the things were and, and what a scapegoat was and the various offerings that were given, Jesus was the perfect and permanent sacrifice. He was the one who took away what we did. It's why John 20, 31 tells us, but these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Luke 9.22 tells us, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. When they came to the tomb that first Easter morning, they knew Jesus had been killed, crucified on a cross. But they thought his body was there in the tomb. And as they came to the tomb, as Luke 24, 5 through 6 tells us, the angel said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Friends, if Jesus had stayed dead in the tomb, he would be a liar or a lunatic. But Jesus rose from the dead because he was the Lord. And so as we think of what kind of punctuation point describes Easter this morning, it's the exclamation point. He was who he said he was, the Lord, the Christ, the promised one, the Son of God, the one who came to die to pay the penalty of death that you and I owed for our sins. Jesus Christ said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Jesus took our place. He went to the cross and he died for us. He took on flesh and blood, not just so he could walk among us like an ant and help with the broken world, but he took on flesh and blood so he could pay that penalty of death. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. We owe a penalty of death. Somebody had to pay it. And because we are all sinners, the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin literally means to miss the mark. It means we haven't been perfect. Is there anyone here who's never, ever taken a cookie, uh, told a lie, done anything wrong ever in your life? No. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the standard of perfection. And because of that, we owe a penalty. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. A gift is something freely given. You don't earn it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
If you're here this morning on Easter because you think you have to check this box off to get to heaven that I went to church on Easter, I'm glad you're here, but friends, you're lost. God says you can't come to enough Easter services to cover your sins. You can't do enough good things to cover your sins because we all owe a penalty of death. The only way our penalty could be dealt with was through what Jesus did when he went to the cross. It's why as we read in the Bible, as Jesus spread his arms and he was nailed there and he was going through the gruesomeness and and the things that were happening, the last thing Jesus said as he breathed his last was, it is finished. The Bible has in the original Greek text, teteleste, a word that means paid in full. Jesus said, I have paid the penalty of death. I have covered the cost. I've closed the account. My blood has washed away your sins. And he says that gift is available to you if you will believe who I am and receive me as your Savior. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Nobody debates that Jesus died on a cross on Calvary about 2,000 years ago. History tells us that. Nobody debates that the tomb was empty. Everybody, including non-biblical writings, tell us the tomb was empty. But what some people say is the tomb was empty because somebody stole his body. The problem is Jesus kept showing up for 40 days saying, not dead, here I am, I'm alive. And then he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God and he's waiting to come back for us. And for all who know Jesus as their Savior, the Bible tells us when our life is over, when we die, we go from earth to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's for those who have received Jesus as their Savior. If you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ, and this morning you understand he's who he said he was, the promised Messiah, the one who died to save you and me from our sins, and you're ready to turn to him and accept his gift in your place, then I'm going to invite you to pray with me. There's nothing magic in the prayer. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You can do it in the privacy of where you're sitting. But what you have to do is acknowledge in your mind that you're a sinner, meaning you've made some mistakes. And as a sinner, you owe a penalty, a penalty called death. And what you're saying is, Jesus, I accept your death in my place. I thank you for taking my place And I know you're who you said you were because three men died on crosses that day. Two thieves went in the grave and they did not come out alive that morning. Three days later, Jesus did. Now remember, one of them went home to be with the Lord in heaven because as he hung on the cross, a wicked sinner who had done nothing to redeem himself, he said, I believe you're who you said you are, the Son of God. He said, remember me this day when you enter into your kingdom, when you come into paradise. And Jesus said to him, because of your faith, You will be with me this day. So if you're here this morning and you're ready to believe by faith, based upon the evidence, the eyewitness accounts, the things you know to be true, that Jesus is who he said he was, then I invite you to pray this prayer with me and accept Jesus as your Savior. Simply bow your heads and you can repeat this in your mind. Dear God, I've made some mistakes in my life. And because of that, I'm a sinner. And as a sinner, I know I deserve a penalty, a penalty of death. 
I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place. To pay that penalty of death that I owe for my sins. I accept Jesus as my personal Savior. I believe, Jesus, you died to wash away my sins. And today I'm accepting your gift of new and eternal life. As I turn from my sins into you, God's Son, as my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for your death in my place. Thank you for closing the account. Thank you for inviting me into your family and giving me the gift of eternal life. I pray this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm going to be at the front after the service, as will other prayer leaders. We would love to talk to you to make sure you understand that first step of faith that you took to help you to begin to grow in your walk with the Lord. For the rest of us who know the Lord, as we leave here today, go and share the good news that the tomb was empty, that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Christ. Will you stand and sing this closing song in worship?